Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Come to the Table by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, we desire to see more of Christ and we are in need of the help of the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, because your word opens up the promise that you have so much more for all of us. And so, Lord, today I pray that we would be open with our hands out in expectation for what you have for us. Blessed be your wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, worship team. And for those that enjoyed worship, then please join us tonight for our monthly worship service, uh, where we just get to love on the Lord for uh, a little while. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, you'd like to meet me again in Exodus 25. While you're making your way there, uh, recently we celebrated Anzac Day. Uh, Ross and Sue kicked it off with a uh, a media representation. So uh, thank you for not... (laughs) Thank you for not mentioning The Rock, by the way. <laughs> that, 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 was, uh, that was very good. But we should celebrate Anzac Day, and not because we glorify war, but because we remember sacrifice and we remember that freedom comes with a price. So uh, we should do. If you are in Tasmania, Anzac Day in this time of year also brings other things to mind. Uh, first thing is that in 1996, on the 28th of April, uh, a desperately, desperately unwell person uh, took to Port Arthur and changed the lives of many people. And, of course, many people will know what happened, and that person's still in jail and will stand before God, and that's good enough for me. But 10 years after that event, as media crews are descending on Tasmania to to unpack the 10-year anniversary of what happened at Port Arthur, on Anzac Day, on the very day, uh, two men would be beneath the ground in Beaconsfield. And many people will know that in 2006, on Anzac Day, there was an earthquake. 17 men were underground that day. 14 quickly came out. Three were trapped underground. One would never come out from underground. And uh, the two men that were trapped underground, Todd Russell and Brent Webb. Todd Russell I played football against. Brent Webb was a good friend of my stepfather's. So uh, I kind of got the personal story, but it was interesting. Uh, I've actually worked at the Beaconsfield Mine, but it's now a museum, so I worked there cleaning uh, after they turned it into a museum. But it was interesting talking to Brant and what was going through their minds straight after what had happened. Uh, Here we have two guys stuck underground and uh, immediately, unbeknownst to them, immediately they had instigated a rescue plan. And for many of us, we will know that there was a sanctuary. It was called Eden. And there was a tragedy that happened in Eden. And just like those two men, mankind found themselves in a place, lost. But unbeknownst to mankind at that point in time, God had immediately initiated his rescue plan. Uh, what Brent would say is, he said, you know, it's interesting, uh, they quickly drilled a hole to us and they managed to, they managed to get a phone, they could talk to their family, he said, but it's different. He said, it's different when you're talking to your family, it's different to sitting around the table, it's, it's different to being able to hug them and hold them. He said, it's interesting what you miss. He said they would pass, of course, cigarettes through the hole, <laughs> life's essentials, right? Cigarettes and some drink and some food, he said, but everything was kind of temporary and we remembered what we had lost. We remembered what the surface looked like. We remembered the freedom of being able to eat when you wanted, how you wanted, and we realised how much we had missed all of that. Two weeks underground, 
uh, stuck next to, by the way, uh, neither of these two guys liked each other. Now, these guys aren't Christians, but I said to Brent, God has a way. Uh, I've had, thank you for sharing about patience, Steve. I, I've often had my patience tested, and so that everybody's aware, I'm negative. <clears throat> <laughs> but these two guys actually shared a bond. They travelled the world. They made a lot of money out of telling their story. But uh, as we come to the story of the tabernacle, you know, I was reminded of that event on Anzac Day and how... What we see here is often in the tabernacle is often a temporary shadow of the real thing that God had promised. Just like those guys that were stuck beneath the surface. And they said, you know what, every drink we had and everything that was siphoned through this little hole to get to us, he said, was the promise of something better when we got to the surface. And, and for those who know the story, they made their way to the surface, they put their tags on and it was, a, it was about a two-week ordeal to get them out from underground. And And often we can think, even when we look at the tabernacle picture, often we can think it's us striving towards God. Often we think, you know, we're like those two men stuck underground, right? And often we think we've got to dig our way out to God. But what that picture highlights and what the gospel highlights very beautifully is that God came to us. And the truth of the tabernacle is not, this is how you can make your way shiny enough to come to God. That's not the story of the tabernacle at all. That is God's desire to dwell amongst his people. That we may worship him. And there is an invitation right in the tabernacle that extends to every one of us. And it's an invitation to come to the table. Last week we looked at the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, in the chest, the Ark of the Covenant, and the importance that that plays in the tabernacle and in worship. And today we're going to look at the table of the showbread or table of the presence bread. Let's have a let's have a read of what uh, Exodus 25 says, uh, starting at verse 23. After the Ark of the Covenant that we covered last week, it says, "You shall make a table of acacia wood." And note that the materials are somewhat the same. But uh, we need to know that the Ark of the Covenant is in what they called the most holy place. That was the place that the high priest went once a year uh, to offer blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. And then there was a huge curtain which separated the most holy place from the holy place. And the holy place was where the priests would go and they would officiate in their priestly duties in the holy place. That's where the table of shoebread is. That's where the menorah or the golden lampstand is, but that's for next week. A couple of things to know. If, if you were in the holy place, the, the table of shoebread would be on the north side and on the south side would be the golden lampstand. Something really important. If you were the priest in the holy place, you weren't stumbling over all this stuff. It was uncluttered. It was ordered. God's trying to tell us something. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Same height as the Ark of the Covenant. It stands the same height as the chest. You shall overlay it, here we go again, with pure gold. And so we saw the Ark was overlaid. It was the acacia wood was incorruptible wood. Uh, it, It was well at hand in the wilderness. Verse 25, and and make a moulding of gold around it. And that will become really important as we unpack some of the significance for Israel. 
And you shall make a rim around it, a hand's breadth, depending on the size of your hand maybe, uh, a wide and a moulding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. And there we have a similar picture to the Ark of the Covenant. Four rings, four corners, two poles. Uh, because please remember that everything in the tabernacle had to be transported regularly. And so there were regulations for how to do that. The priests couldn't just grab hold of the table. This isn't your coffee table in the lounge that you trip over when you go into the toilet in the middle of the night. No, that's, that's not that table. This had to be treated with reverence and respect. There were, there were regulations for transporting. There were certain people that could transport it and others that could not. Verse 27, "'Close to the frame the ring shall lie "'as holders for the poles to carry the table.'" You shall make the poles of acacia wood. Again, you overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. Verse 29, and you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, for frankincense, which is going to become really important in a moment. And it's flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And that's going to be really important. As we come to the table, uh, let's begin to ask uh, probably four questions today. First one is, what is the table? The second one is, what is the symbolism? And we could pull it apart more, but we won't this morning. And what is the significance to Israel? And the last one is, what does that mean for us today? Because uh, as we discussed last week, uh, all of the furnishings inside of the tabernacle uh, point uh, very beautifully and very gloriously to the profound truth that we find in Christ. And so what do we find here in the table of the shoebread? First of all, what is the table? Uh, the, The table was an article of worship. And what we've just read is uh, the table and the shoe bread, by the way, were never separated. And so uh, there was always bread on the table. There was always, even when the table was being transported, there were regulations for covering the table and the bread so that you could transport them. Uh, What the priests would do is they would renew the loaves every Sabbath. And we'll, we'll get to the loaves in a minute. Uh, the fact that it stood the same height as the ark is probably important. Uh, the shoe bread speaks of the, there was 12 loaves that had to be baked of refined flour, which is something we possibly take for granted today. In, but these guys had to bake these 12 loaves from uh, refined ingredients. The, the loaves were all exactly the same size. And they speak of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they would be placed in two stacks of six on the table. And there was a huge molding around the table, which served to guard and to protect and to secure the loaves. Just as God protects and secures and guards us, just in the same way. And you can read about more about the, 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 the baking of the loaves in Leviticus 24 and, and what that means. But as we unpack it, we ask ourselves the question, what was this symbolism and what did it mean? And what we see uh, is that the, every Sabbath, the, the priests would put new bread on the table and the old bread they would take and they would eat. And that is significant. But they had to eat the shoe bread in the holy place together in the presence of God. Uh, uh, 
there's, of course, everybody's going to remember that there's a, there's a digression to this, but the reality is nobody apart from the priests were allowed in there to eat the bread. And everybody's going to say, well, hang on a second, David ate the bread. David and his men ate the bread. And there's a lesson in that that Jesus uses to teach us about the Sabbath. Jesus references that. But, but what happens there is King David is running away from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And, and he's been out for a long time. And him and his men come to the then priest, Abiathar, and they say to him, listen, uh, have you got anything to eat? And he says, I've got nothing except the bread of the presence. And he says, you can eat that if your men have not been defiled. And so David says, we've been out in battle. We haven't been near women or crossed any of those regulations. So therefore you can eat the bread. And later, Jesus says to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees say, you know what? Your disciples, they're picking grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, yeah, but you've lost the meaning of the Sabbath in your rules and regulations. You've lost the heart behind the Sabbath. And so we can lose the heart and the meaning of worship in some of these things in the tabernacle. What he says to the Pharisees is that uh, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying is we, we, the Sabbath has been put in place so that you will remember to make space for God. And you've lost it in your rules and your regulations. And what the priests would do is they would take frankincense. Remember when the Magi come to Christ with gifts? They have gold and frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense uh, was a really rare and valuable uh, fragrance that they used in burning for incense. And more about incense when we move our way through the tabernacle later on. But frankincense speaks of the, the divinity and the purity of Christ. That's what the offering speaks of with Christ. This was a very pure fragrance. And what would happen is the priest would take the frankincense and sprinkle it over the loaves. And it would omit a beautiful aroma in the place of worship. And so some of that symbolism was very significant for Israel because in the same way we are, the 12 tribes speaks of all the people of God and in the same way we are the people of God and the fragrance of Christ has been imputed to us. Now when you stand in the presence of God, you omit the fragrance of Christ because we have had his uh, clean, righteous, holy garments of righteousness placed on us. We have the fragrance and the aroma of Christ. And all of this was very rich symbolism, but uh, this is the first time in scripture that table is ever mentioned. And sometimes we lose this today, uh, how important and imperative uh, a table was in ancient times and even up into the first century when Jesus... Uh, remember the Pharisees would say to Jesus they would rebuke him because he was dining with tax collectors and sinners. He was, he was at the table reclining with tax collectors and sinners because to come to someone's table, to be invited to someone's table was the richest invitation of fellowship and communion in ancient times. God was the first one to lay the table. God was the first one to instigate the table for worship. And just as uh, the 12 loaves represented the people of God, and so we have deep symbolism for each of us. For, for those who, who may not know, numbers and, 
And certain things are very, very symbolic in Scripture. And the number 12 always speaks of redemption. That's why when God's plan of redemption in the Old Testament was put in place, we have 12 tribes of Israel. When the new covenant comes in place, new plan of redemption, we have 12 disciples. Uh, For those that want to go further and take it to the book of Revelation, some good news. Uh, The Jehovah's Witness will tell you that the 144,000 listed in Revelation is an actual number. It's not an actual number. Whenever you see uh, a number cubed or squared in scripture, it means the ultimate. So 144,000 is 12 times 12, which means the total number of redeemed people in the presence of God. That's what that means. You are part of the 144,000. And for Israel, this meant provision. It meant God's sovereign care. It meant that he was all of their nourishment. And it always pointed to something better. Just like those two guys that were underground saying, you know what, every snippet of drink and small... Because they could only get... If you've seen Brent, Brent's a pretty big kind of guy, so it took a fair bit to feed him, but he said all they could stuff through the hole was these small amounts of food. He said they couldn't get it through quick enough. But it, it was a, a symbolic of what he was looking forward to. And here we have in the Old Testament, in everything that we see in the tabernacle and everything we see in the table of shewbread, it is a promise of something better to come. And so today I want to ask the question, because it's a fairly long answer, what is the significance to us today? And there are three main significances to us today that I'd like to highlight. And the first one is that through worship in the tabernacle, everything about the table of the shoebread pointed forward to something better. But today we have another table which looks back. It's called communion. That's why communion is so important. That's why here at the Rock we place heavy importance on communion. What Jesus said is do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus said was, uh, when you partake of this loaf and when you partake of this drink and this cup, you are looking back and I want you to remember the moment in time when I fulfilled everything you were looking forward to. Every article of worship in the tabernacle that you looked for, every prophecy of a better covenant that was to come, I want you to look back and to remember the moment when that came to fulfilment for you. God has laid another table. It's called the table of the Lord. It's why the symbolism that surrounds the table is really important. It's really important to represent those emblems. They're like, as C.H. Spurgeon would say, they're like spiritual glasses by which we can peer in and see a deeper truth behind the veil. Uh, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, would say he would urge them to examine themselves as they come to the table. But he would say, every time you eat of this bread and every time you drink of this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And we mustn't forget that table. 
We mustn't forget the reason that we sit in this room and celebrate and sing the songs we do and praise and worship because there was a moment in history when Jesus was the fulfillment for all of that. But there's more. There's more that the bread points to. And we live in a culture and a society today that's all about the relentless pursuit of more. And what I love about the symbolism of the bread is that Jesus is our more. Here's how Jesus put it. Uh, after feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. It's possible with the size of the fish that I catch to feed that amount of people, but, but five loaves of bread, I'm not so sure. But after that, he had a lot of people following him. And, and he says, you know what? You're only following me because really you, you had your fuel and now you, you're following me for some free food. And he says, labour for the bread that does not perish. And Jesus would say after that, he would point back to that miracle and he would say, I am the bread of life. I am all of your spiritual nourishment. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, my Christian life has become a little bit stagnant. I've stopped growing. I want you to know that Jesus is where you get all of your spiritual nourishment. It's where we get our growth. Jesus came to fill that hole in your life. You see, just like we have a physical belly, just like we have a belly that needs filling every now and again, for my boys, it's about every half an hour, but for everybody else, it's two or three times a day, right? But the reality is we also, uh, Ecclesiastes says that we're born with a hole too, that God has placed eternity in our hearts, that we we long to be satisfied. And what did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Uh, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For those that read the miracle of the 5,000 that were fed, we read that every one of them had their fill and they picked up 12 basketfuls of fragments afterwards. What is Jesus telling everybody? I am more than enough. You will never exhaust me. In a world that is striving for the relentless pursuit of more, Jesus said 2,000 years ago, I am the bread of life. I am the more that you're looking for. Anybody who comes to me will what? Never leave hungry and never go home thirsty. But there's one more. There's one more that speaks of a table, and I love this. You know, often uh, we... We look at the tabernacle and we can see that we try to picture our Christian life as the pursuit towards God. But although what we read here is how the priests worked their way through the tabernacle, I want to, before I get to this passage today, I want to highlight that there's another tabernacle, there's another place where God dwells and he's trying to get in. See, God reverses it. And there was a church in the book of Revelation that Jesus had a message to. And it's important that we understand in in Revelation chapter 3, it's important we understand that this is a letter to a church. It's not a letter to unbelievers. This is a letter to God's people. This is a letter to to people who are saved. And and you know what? They, They at least think they love Jesus. And I believe that they did. And 
verse 14 of chapter 3 says, and to the angel of the church, and God's word and God's message always comes through authority. The word angel there is messenger or pastor. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. Can't we get lost in works today? Jesus comes to the church at Laodicea and says, you know what? I see all the good things you're doing. I see that you turn up to church. I, I see that you give your money. I see that, you know, you, you go to fellowship every now and again. You, you turn up to life. I see your works. I see what you are doing. But there's a big but. Yeah. I, I would that you were either cold nor hot. And Jesus says, you know what? I, I would rather you were cold or hot, because if you were cold, at least then we could look at warming you up. But there's a problem. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you're either cold or hot. Why? So because you are lukewarm. Only place in the New Testament that the word lukewarm is used. And the problem with being lukewarm is you think you're hot, hot, hot. Like some of the guys I used to go to high school with, they thought they were hot. Dude, have a look in the mirror. <laughs> But when you think you're hot and you're not, it's a problem. And to this church, before we finish today, Jesus has a huge promise of more. For those that read the pastor's comments this morning, God has more for every one of us. That's, the, that's what I love about the promise in Christ, is that Jesus promised more. Jesus promised his disciples, I'm going away. But what did he say? I will come to you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I've got something better for you. I've got more for you. The word lukewarm here only used once in the New Testament and would have been a punch between the eyes for the Laodiceans because they knew what lukewarm water was all about. You see, uh, Laodicea was on one of the major trading routes, but the problem was they were a long way from any natural water springs or any natural water reservoirs. They had to pipe their water uh, probably from Colossae, which was a fair distance away. By the time they had piped it through ducks to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And so the minute they get this water, they either have to cool this water or they have to heat it because as it is, it's unpalatable. That's what Jesus is saying. Just like when you take a drink of that water and you spit it out like a lukewarm cup of coffee or any temperature of tea. But because you're lukewarm... And you can do what you like with these words this morning, but Jesus said them, not me. I will spit you out of my mouth. Whoa. One translation, I believe it's the old King James, says, I will spew you out of my mouth. Whoa. I wonder if the church in the West... I wonder if they're too far removed from the church at Laodicea. Let's read, as Jesus unpacks what their problem was, let's read and find out whether there might be some similarities. So because you're a lukewarm and you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, for you say, you say I am rich, I have prospered and I have a need of nothing. We often think that God's not moving and that God's having a couple of days off. I want you to know that God is moving very powerfully amongst his church and the body of Christ. He's just moved locations. 
If you're in the church in Iran at the moment, you would be in the middle of one of the greatest revivals in recent time. If you were in one of the underground churches in China, you would be in a revival right now. God is not silent. God is not stagnant. God is moving. We have to ask ourselves here in the West, Lord, what's going on? You see, that term, I need nothing. We've, we've systemized and we've strategized God down to the nth degree. And there's a great danger in that because what happens is we turn around and oh, we don't need anything. Look, we can, we can give 7% increase. We can build these organizations. We're planting campuses all over the place. But if you're planting campuses of lukewarm Christians, what are we achieving, friends? For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realising, says Jesus, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I love reading the word because I didn't say this stuff. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy. That word counsel is the same as if you were seeking advice from a lawyer as you were approaching a trial in court. I'm giving you counsel now for the moment when you will stand before the judge. That's what Jesus is saying. Uh, Anybody picked up on the contradiction here. Jesus, you just told the Laodiceans that they were poor, naked and blind and now you're telling them to buy? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined. How can they buy? It's because when you come into God's economy, it's not about what you bring. What did Isaiah say? Let the thirsty come without price. Drink of the fountains of living water Without price. Leave your checkbook at home, but you have to come. Jesus is going to teach us before we finish this passage, he's going to teach every one of us exactly what it means to buy from him. That word in the Greek means to frequent one's marketplace. I wonder what marketplace we frequent. Counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments. Uh, Laodicea was known for its textiles uh, and textile manufacturing. It was known for its eye salve. That's why Jesus says, buy from me garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 20. This is the verse I wanted to get to this morning. Verse 20, let's read it and then we'll go back over it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And here's what, when we unpack that verse, please remember that Jesus isn't talking to non-believers. He's talking to church folk. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door. Behold, I have placed myself at a point of opportunity for you. That's what a door means. It's an opportunity. But we have to do something here. Uh, I stand and I've placed myself at a, at a moment of opportunity and I knock. Anybody ever, anybody ever sense God knocking on your heart? It can look like circumstances. It can look like maybe God strips stuff away from us. It can look like many different things. But often it's God trying to knock on your heart and say, hey, I'm here. You've been distracted for too long. 
put the cat out and come back. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and hears how we buy from Christ, we open the door. You see, in the tabernacle, we read about priests that went into the holy place and, and, they, and there was a table there for worship with 12 loaves. But now we read about a God that's trying to come to our table. And the sad truth is that too many people leave him on the porch knocking. Every one of us have the promise of more. It wasn't that these guys weren't saved. It wasn't that they didn't have a relationship. That's why Jesus is heading them off at the pass. You guys are heading for destruction. You need to, you need to settle it now. And I am here for more for you. More than your works, more than your acts, more than your religious ceremonies, more than your buildings, more than all of those things. I am here because I want to dine with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to come in and dwell. But how many of us, remember the parable of the banquet? And the master says, go and invite my guests. And the first one says, well, you know, I'm about to get married. The other one says, I've got to go and check my cows. And how many of us say to Jesus, yeah, I'll get to you in a minute, um, the bachelor's on. Heresy, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Notice who comes first. And he will dine with us. Break bread with us. Fellowship with us. What we see in the tabernacles is an invitation to come to God's table. What we see here to the Laodiceans is God asking to come to our table. Nothing else matters apart from that relationship with Christ. I've known friends and I've known colleagues who have been in ministry and have put their hand up and said, I'm out. And every single one of them even some of the prominent leaders that we may, know, we may know, every single one of them, when you scratch beneath the surface, they stopped dining with Christ at the table. There was a point when they got busy for the Lord, but they stopped sitting at his feet. And what Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church is, you guys, I'm at the t- I want to come to the table, but you guys aren't even there. I-, I want to come and have fellowship with you. I want to dine with you. I want to commune with you. That's the promise we have in Christ. It's not that we have to make our way to God, but all we have to do is open ourselves and surrender. And so this morning as we we come to a close, I wonder if we can just take a couple of moments I have two questions this morning the first one is in a world that is under the relentless pursuit of more is Jesus enough for you? The last question I have is Jesus stands at the door wanting to dine with every single one of us. Will you open the doors of your heart? Sometimes that's messy. 
I guarantee you that when Jesus comes into the tabernacle, when Jesus comes into the house of your life, he's going to open all of those closets. Father, as we close this morning, I I thank you that you found me. Just like those two men that were buried 1.2 kilometres beneath the surface, Lord, you came to me, you found me, you saved me. And all you ask of us is that we will surrender, trust you, believe in you. Father, I pray that every heart in this room would hear you knocking on the door of their heart. And that, Lord, we would open. And we would know a richer fellowship with you. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.